of your eye, huddled in the darkest shadows of imagination, it waits. Now is the time to face the fear. Welcome to Horror Lasagna. Embrace the trepidation. the first episode of season four because you know between that intro that people have been listening to for weeks and weeks we've spent so much time preparing for this season well about 3.2 seconds i think difference that's right <laughs> yeah the movie for today is baskin there is a list of 15 movies that i thought for myself i should see and I've been working my way through it. And it's not horror movies like like The Phantom Carriage or like the original Friday the 13th. These are ones that are notorious for one reason or another. Okay. Uh, Martyrs was on that list. I'm trying to think what else. Audition was on that list. You know, the ones that we start the season off with. Yeah, the big hitters. The ones that really nobody wants to go see except us. And that's the ones we'll recommend you go see. And today's movie was one of those movies on that list. Oh, Uh, okay. This is Baskin. It is a Turkish film from 2015. And one of the few that is completely notes, captioned, because I did not see a dubbed version anywhere. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I don't know. Again, I'm not really sure about financials on this one, but... I don't know that it had a really big theater tour. I would be really surprised if it made a whole lot of money. But the thing is, it's overall a very well-made movie. We watched range of budgets, and I would not have been able to tell you watching this if it was super high budget, super low budget, or what. It was very what you might consider a very professional done. It didn't feel like some of the college student ones that we've seen. Yeah. I do have financials here in my notes. I don't know what oh, the hell I'm talking about. Yeah. The movie runs an hour and 37 minutes, which again, hits that perfect horror movie sweet spot of about an hour and a half. Right. It was made on a budget of quote under $500,000 quote. So how far under was it? 499 and 999. But uh, the box office gross worldwide, however, stands at $318,000. Wow. Yeah. And when, back in the day when I first saw this movie, I had to order it to come in and it took six months to come in. I remember. Very difficult to get a hold of this film. And then I saw, as I was doing research on this, at one point in time, this was on Netflix. And I was like, what? Wow. Yeah. To this day, you can still, not unlike Martyrs, get this on YouTube But again, you can't rent it. You have to purchase the film. It's interesting because it's an IFC at night or something like that. So it was IFC midnight. Yeah, IFC midnight. It was a sponsored thing. All the award contest award winners or the British lottery (laughs) ones and stuff. There's somebody out there helping fund and push these to get them out. Now, before we do too much more, we need to talk a little bit about Turkish cinema. Oh yes, let's. Oh, and. This is going to kind of date this episode, (laughs) 
So I apologize for that, but we happen to be recording this like a day or two after a massive earthquake hit Turkey and killed yeah. thousands of people. So our hearts and thoughts are with all the people who are dealing with that nonsense. Which especially was scary for me because, as I said, I went and saw a knock at the cabin door, the M. Night movie, and there was an apocalypse happening and there was multiple big earthquakes. So to come home from seeing that movie to hear that, I right. was like, wow. Yeah. Turkish cinema has been around since the 1920s. It hit this golden point in the 1960s. A lot of their films of the times were more popular than the American imported versions in Turkey. But it also was insular because for the longest time, Turkish movies never left Turkey. They really didn't cross over under, into other places. The cinema itself started to die out in, I'm thinking that's the 60s. In my note, it just says zero apostrophe S. So apparently the number disappeared from the front of it. <laughs> so at that time, the population in Turkey turned to television instead of movies. So the cinema started to die out. By the 80s, the government attempted to keep the industry afloat. And it pushed exporting films, but it didn't have a whole lot of success. Then in the 90s, you had these newer, younger directors. They started making short films and then moving on to full-length features in the 2000s, at which point in time the industry enjoyed this renaissance where people started going back to the theater. And historically, there have always been very few Turkish films that were successfully exported. And John Aversol, Evernol, the director of Baskin, is, to his knowledge, the first horror director to make a full-length Turkish horror movie that was exported out and accepted worldwide. Oh, nice. Okay, there's some good uh, trivia for Jeopardy fans. Yeah. And if you're one of those people who is considering watching this movie, he did a short first. It was like It's only like 10 minutes long, 10 or 15 minutes. It's called Baskin. You can find it on YouTube. It is age-restricted, so you have to be signed in, and YouTube <laughs> needs to think you're over 18 in order for you to watch it. But it's there, and it is a good, like work-in-progress kind of glimpse. You can, there's not a whole lot of story to it. It's just this, it's basically if you took a chunk of 15 minutes of the last half hour of the movie and threw it up there, that's what it is. Got it. He pro Did he do that to show proof of concept to get funding, maybe? No, I think he just, I think he did it because he wanted to, and then he saw the potential of the story and the cast to expand it. Yeah. I love that type of story behind yeah. it. The film was nominated for 15 awards and it took five of those, including the best director. He took that twice, best makeup, best film and best bloodbath international film. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the film debuted at the Toronto international film festival on September 11th, 2015. Evernall was actually at the debut and he said somebody in the industry, he wouldn't say who, whether it was an actor or a director, walked up to him after the movie really started getting going and leaned down and shook his hand and said, congratulations on your success, but I really can't sit here and watch this. <laughs> wow. Theater. Yeah. wow. Yeah, he was pretty thrilled with that. Yeah, I bet. So the director, his name is Jan Ever Evernall. It's spelled can, 
C-A-N, but in Turkish, a C is a J, a soft J sound. So it's actually John Evernall. He was born and raised in Istanbul, and he studied film and art history at the University of Kent in Canterbury. He worked in the world of television commercials in Turkey, where he made a lot of connections, and those connections he made helped him make his own little shorts on the side. He began, as many of the directors in the 90s did, doing short horror films, and he actually won international awards for his shorts back then. And in 2013, he had this idea for a short film about a team of police officers intervening in a black mass and it going all wrong. And that's what he made, and he called it Baskin. And you, like I said, you can watch it on YouTube. He didn't win any awards for that short, but he did get three nominations for it. Oh, that's good. The The actual film itself was shot during the height of the Getsy protests in Turkey. And those protests were marred by frequent, very public incidents of police brutality. Tajep Erdogan is in charge of Turkey, and over time he has become more and more kind of fundamentalist, theocratic, strongman kind of thing. And in 2015 or 2013, in this area called Getsi, he was going to tear down a park, I think, in the city and replace it with, I don't know, some kind of building. And the citizens didn't want the park pulled down and they started this protest. And it was not unlike the Arab Spring. The protests started in this small town and spread nationwide. And the police were just brutal in cracking down on this. And that's why, while two of the police officers in the squad of police in this movie aren't bad, there's a lot of times where the police are doing inappropriate stuff or people have really bad attitudes about these guys in the movie because at that time, the police really had a very negative public personification at the time. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And I was even noticing we have our own problems with police in this country that's getting sure. big attention and brought out. Uh, and I'm watching this. And noticing, I'm like, yeah, different countries, man. They have different feelings and thoughts on the police and that. So it is an interesting cultural thing there. But the other thing I noticed, though, and I love this about some of the movies we watch is, oh, I get to see another country. But hardly any of these show us like a city or lots of people. It's always somewhere in the woods or it's one house. (laughs) That's what we get. You don't get a lot of culture out of this movie. Not regular turkey culture, I'll say. Yeah, I did a whole lot of research into Turkish culture and folklore and stuff like that while we're researching for this. But at the time, because of Erdogan's kind of cracking down on social norms in Turkey, Evernal had to actually do this movie on the slide. This was all done guerrilla warfare style. Wow. So uh, he did their pre-production for 30 days before they shot, and then they shot for 28 nights straight. And then their post-production was completed in two weeks for a total of 72 days from when he started the project to when he finished it. So he wouldn't ask for permits to shoot. He would just roll up to sites in the middle of the night, unload everything quickly, do the shoot, and load everything up and take off 
before anybody could show up or bust them for what they were doing. Wow. The other thing that he did that was, I don't know, I'd lo- I bet it was intentional. The other thing that he did that was brilliant was that he sent it out internationally. And the movie got such great acclaim that the po- that's like the censors in Turkey didn't actually want to take action against him because he was successfully exporting Turkish film. So he protected himself a little bit that way, but he still felt the need to shoot the whole thing completely in secret. Wow. So you're not going to see the Hagia Sophia or any of the other famous things out of Istanbul in this film. This was all done on the side in the dark. He points to Gaspar Noé and David Lynch and George Romero and John Carpenter as his influences for direction in general. He has a love for the Northern Renaissance period as far as like painting goes. And so he likes that kind of dark, almost claustrophobic feel that you get with the Northern Renaissance. He cites Cronenberg, Lovecraft, Barker as like authors that he enjoys. And he... For this film specifically, he was pulling from the new French Extremity (laughs) and from the first Doom game. Wow, okay. Yeah. He said, I watched a lot of interviews with him, and there have been times when I've seen interviews with directors, and I've said it, where they're like, oh, blah, 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 Hollywood, yada, yada, yada. And then there have been guys like the guy who did the autopsy of Jane Doe, who was like, Yes, okay, it's all great, but it's all due to the actors and the crew. And this guy's a completely different kind of interview because he is just super excited to be there and he can't wait to talk about it. And you bring something up and he just like wraps around the subject and just just talk about it. So he's one of those guys who's just authentically pumped to talk about his work. That's great. I love that. I'm going to have to look up a couple interviews now just because I want to see that. He said that one of the things that was a big influence on him in this is his love of heavy metal album covers, the late 80s, specifically Man of War and Iron Maiden. He really liked the art on those album covers, and they became a thing for him. He wanted the film to feel surreal and nightmarish and kind of art housey. And I think he accomplished that. The movie's super surreal especially once you've watched it like three times and you're like, wait, this is a dream in a dream in a dream. Yeah. I I even said, okay, so obviously he has seen Jacob's ladder and because there's so much of it. I was like, okay, this is like the real horror version of Jacob's ladder. Yeah. He was also a big fan of Lucio Fulci. Um, And we talked about Lucio Fulci at Halloween he was the one of the competitors to Argento with the whole Gallo film movement. Evernall has directed 17 pieces total, the first six of which were shorts. This was his first full-length film, and he's gone on to do three other features, four television series and a music video. I haven't seen any of his later work, and I like to, you know, in quotes... I don't know. If you watch this movie three times. <laughs> There's something wrong with you. Oh, that, oh, wait, that wasn't where you were going? <laughs> I, it's weird because on the one hand, you appreciate it more because you pick up more stuff. But on the other hand, it's a little more disturbing because you pick up more stuff. <laughs> that, that, I was kind of thinking that. I was following along the movie and I'm like, wow, 
this is definitely a movie to see again to pick up what you missed or what didn't make sense the first time and all that. And I got done. I'm like, yeah, there's a few things that are going to have to be watched again to get some of this. There was a review that I read about this film that said the brilliance of this film is how ridiculously layered and complex it is with the ridiculously thin plot that's provided to it. <laughs> that's, that sounds very derogatory, but it's accurate. It is, because the plot of this is five guys get called into a building, bad stuff happens. And that's pretty much the whole story in a nutshell. And that's funny you say that too, because I, I made a note here that like a lot of horror, this has a lot of buildup to get to the where the story kicks off yeah. in a way. And horror does that a lot. And part of the problem in today's audiences, and other authors say this a lot, they want the story right now. You got to have, if I can't, if I can't tell what's going on by page two, I'm done and I'm out. And I'm like, really? Page two? I'm like, Stephen King writes 800 page books. You can't tell me that reading the first two pages is going to set everything up for 800 more pages for the good books, let's say. (laughs) So in a story aspect, this had a lot of buildup. But it's interesting because, as we've already said, there's some dreams within dreams and flipping back and forth between what's happening and needs that buildup to really get to that point where they have all those things going on, especially then the ending. (laughs) Yeah, it's 50 minutes from the start of the movie until they're actually in the haunted house part of it part of the thing so there is a whole lot that builds up to that without lots of music it's low notes that are very intense but not music i was listening to that right away and i'm like wow that's building the feel without having all the music and there were no dogs hurt maybe a couple frogs but i don't think there are any dogs hurt (laughs) there's the implication for buckets of frogs to be hurt for sure yeah yeah. (laughs) so i'm only made notes on three of the actors because I saw interviews with two of them and then only one of them have you ever seen in any other film ever. And I am going to slaughter their names. Which, please forgive us, we are so not cultural enough to get multiple countries' pronunciations For sure. (laughs) The first is Mehmet Karahoglu and he played the character of the father or Baba. He's done eight films in total, and Baskin was his first. Wow. He had a bit part when Evernall did the short. And as soon as Evernall saw him, he knew right away that he wanted this guy to be the character of the father in the full-length piece. Mehmet has birth was born with some sort of condition, not unlike Javier Botet, who plays mother and all those other, but instead of being tall and thin, he's very short and like hairless and very distinctive facial features. I Um, was going to ask about that. Uh, When he came up, I'm like, is that prosthetics? Is that what he really looks like? That's that's intense. Really him. Up until that point, he was the disabled guy in the village. They gave him a job as like a parking lot attendant. And that was his job. But he started putting out auditions and unsaw his audition tape and thought he looked interesting enough to put into the short. And once he actually met him, the guy, super intense, like he got a a sketchbook and just started drawing stuff that he thought would fit into the movie. 
And like, he came in with his own opinions and Evernall's that's a good idea. And he would take those opinions. Wow. So like one of the things he loved was at the end of apocalypse. Now the lighting when Martin Sheen is going after Marlon Brando, it's super dark, shadowy, chiaroscuro kind of light. And Mehmet's like, that's what we need. And Evernall really plays with that through the entire film. Very much. And there's even a scene, which I'll, I mentioned in the notes later when we get to it, that is like almost frame by frame taken directly from Apocalypse Now, which I just thought was super cool. Oh, because nice. It goes by and you're like, oh, but if you knew the connection, you're like, oh, I can, that's Marlon Brando right there. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't pick up on that. Oh, yeah. it's been a while since I saw Apocalypse Now. Ergen Kyuku or Kyuchu played Remzi. And in the movie, it's funny. There's two guys, Oppo and Remzi, and they both have nicknames. And Oppo is the chief and Remzi is the boss. And I think the difference seems to be that the chief uses the radio. <laughs> I'm not really sure. They, there were five policemen. I'm like, what is this? Like a, a science fiction or a superhero anime? We always have the five characters. Yeah. So Ergen has been in 39 pieces. He had been in a lot of television series and almost all of them, he played the villain. And so he was actually excited this time. He wasn't playing the villain. He was actually playing the hero almost in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, the interviewer was talking to him and asked him what his favorite movie was. And he said, it's a wonderful life. He's a big Jimmy Stewart fan. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to be in horror movies. <laughs> you're pretty much as far from Jimmy Stewart right now as you could be. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Muharram Bayrak played Yavuz. And he's been in 21 pieces. And I included him here because he was actually in Taken 2. Oh, the bad guys, I assume. I'm sure he was one of the bad guys because you know, that's what Western directors <laughs> do with Muslim people. They make right. them bad guys. But he was the only one on the list who showed up in any title that anybody who listens to this would actually know. So, Well, hey, this movie could get us a really big Turkish following and they'll have to get the, the reading the bottom of it. It'd be great. I'd love it. <laughs> This movie, unlike the starter for season three, there's not going to be any debate about whether this is a horror movie. <laughs> there's also not going to be any debate about how much of this happens. In, is this one person going insane? I don't think it is. It may be a whole bunch of people going insane, but I don't know how much. It, I went into this movie taking it at face value the first time I saw it. It... it... I'm definitely going to have to watch this one again at some point just because of all the layers, like you said, and then how it, the ending, I was kind of like, wait a second, hold on. I'm going to have to like take notes where we're at. Like you said, the film also vaguely suffers from like black mountainside syndrome because you have five guys, at least three of them are wearing like leather with a beard and a mustache and very short hair and their names are foreign, which makes it that much more difficult. And then some of them have nicknames, which get used on occasion, which makes it that much more difficult. It's hard to keep track of who's doing what, when. Yes. But I also don't think it affects understanding and watching the movie as a whole, because a lot of what they say and do 
could be a several characters and it wouldn't matter. Right. It not unlike Black Mountainside, I can't tell you who the cook was and what his final fate was. I think it might have been shot, but most of them were. <laughs> most a bunch of them were. That was a safe guess. But it didn't really affect the film. So as soon as this movie begins, there's a chance it's going to be good because it's being distributed by IFC under the midnight tag. Yeah. And not all IFC midnight tags films are good, but a lot of them are. You got a good chance. Yeah. It is worth noting for anybody listening to this, the film is not rated. It's very brutal. There's sexual situations. There's torture. There's all kinds of stuff. Contemplate before you watch this. It is very brutal, but I wouldn't say that they they don't focus on that to make it like, oh, this is going to creep people out. This is going to make people jump and shriek. And oh, this is going to be... it's part of the movie because it's part of the story and it's not dwelt upon as the major focus at the moment. The story is the whole time. Whereas all the graphic elements are to enhance the story, but not taking away and being the focus at some point, which I think a lot of horror movies make the mistake of doing. Correct. It is a necessary part of the narrative. It's not put in there additionally to make it shocking. Exactly. However, When the film starts, like the first three to five minutes of the film, you're watching it. It could be Goonies. Yeah. I I said, said, wow, I love all those toys. That's some great toy choices. Yeah. It has that feel about it. Um, And it's really not. (laughs) I think may help set up shock value. Correct. In a subtle way. Yeah. In general, the film is shot in like three different locations. Uh, You have what I'm calling the actual world, which is the one with roads and vans and restaurants and people in it. Then you have the film that is in the world that is in Arda's head. And he is the youngest member of this police squad of five. And then the last is hell itself. (laughs) And so the movie kind of fluidly flows between all of these, and it doesn't necessarily tell you when it's changing. It's a little, now that you said it that way, it's a little hints of Silent Hill going on. Again, three worlds in Silent Hill. Yeah. So the film opens with this kind of creepy 1980s sounding horror music, and it fits really well with the camera work because it looks like a late 80s, early 90s kids horror movie Uh, you see a bunch of toys in a boy's room that's dark at night and the camera kind of pans across and there's a boy lying on bed and he gets up and leaves his room and here's the thing a little hint that it might not be a kids movie because it sounds like there's sex going on behind this door that he walks past and i made that comment too i'm like wow very few of the horror movies we watch involve sex. You have that trope of, oh, they're having sex, they're going to die. Or, oh, she lost her shirt, she's going to die. That's how Kevin Bacon lost his life in Friday the 13th. And yet, these movies don't have sex hardly at all. This was one of the, maybe the first one I think we've watched where there's sex in the movie, even though they don't show it, what's going on behind closed doors. Or at least those of you that have had sex know what's going on behind closed doors. I actually came across a fan theory saying that because Evernall does this thing with the lighting in this movie where the lighting in the middle is neutral 
and then it'll be red tinted or blue tinted. Oh. And they were saying because the boys walking past the door and their sex sounds from the other side of the door and the door is tinted red that his mother is having sex with the devil and that this boy is actually a prodigy of the devil himself. Just the fact that this movie has fans with fan theories is pretty impressive. <laughs> oh yeah, this movie definitely has a cult following. If you feel like debating with them on social media, you better come loaded for bear. Yeah. The kid gets up, leaves his room. He's in the hallway. His mom's having a good time in the other room, all even though her door is lit with a red light. And the TV's on in the living room. And he goes in and it's just static. Like, like in the eighties, right. You fall asleep, you wake up. <laughs> guys, yeah. He turns the TV off and then he turns his head to the side and there's this filthy hand with this long ratty sleeve reaching out towards him. And he's terrified. So he runs to his mom's room and starts beating on the door. But there's another door somewhere in the hallway that slams shut and the title card comes up and it says Baskin. And typographically, it's what I do. Uh, the the hole in the letter A is a keyhole. I didn't catch that. Yeah. I saw it, but I didn't realize it. Ah, Keys wow, are a huge theme yeah. throughout this whole film. Yeah. Okay. Nice. So here's the tricky, here's the really sneaky thing that he did to this movie. On your first watch, this whole thing is a red herring. Because you have this boy who wakes up in the middle of the night, TV's on, he turns it off, there's this ratty robed hand that reaches out for him, and then, boom, something drastic happens. Then you have this following scene. And in the following scene, uh, the camera starts panning, almost Evil Dead style. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like on a dolly floating above the street, heading towards this diner. There's a van parked outside the restaurant and it goes through the back of the van and through the interior of it. And you can see from a photograph over the dash, it's a police squad, right. which I thought was really interesting, actually. And not surprising, but in Turkey, they have like police vans and police cars. And the van has five guys in the van. Each one has their own job. And so they can show up and they're like instant police presence, which is kind of an interesting concept for policing. And I thought about that exact thing because they sounded like they were heading back to the station after they were done eating, after they were done doing their job for the day. And they were driving. He's like, no, I know there's a turn up here. And I was thinking, I don't know Turkey that well. And I don't know the area that they filmed this at, but it sounded like it was very out there in rural and things were separated. So they needed the van to this part of this area, we need some police for the day. That's your job, but we need a whole crew to go at one time. That's yeah. what I was thinking it might be. I didn't know for sure, but it was- Yeah, I'm not really sure about the intricate workings of it, but that could be it too. Yeah, just you have this mobile police force that you can send from a city to a more remote area. Yeah. And actually have enough manpower to do the job. But I'm assuming that this was not unnormal for Turkish people- because, you know, yeah. he filmed it and for us, it, it stood out. So I'm assuming that this is a common type of thing. An uh, interesting over. cultural difference for us. Exactly. Exactly. So. See all the great things we learn yeah. <laughs> on this podcast. Yeah. So here comes the red herring. This robed figure walks by carrying a bucket and the hand holding the bucket with the sleeve on the robe looks suspiciously like the hand at the opening of the film. 
The figure stops at the entrance to the restaurant where the policemen are talking, and it stays outside. And the I think it's Yavuz is talking about a plan to get additional money. They're going to vote. They're going to do some soccer brackets, and they're having this very animated discussion. Busboy comes in, grabs some plates from the table, and takes them out. He's completely faceless in the frame. In fact, clear up until he actually interacts with the characters, it's always shot with his head out of frame. Yeah, so it is some interesting camera work with this. And as a side note, both Colin and I thought the newest M. Night movie had some of the best camera work we've seen in a movie in a while. The most interesting camera work. That probably helped me make like it. So... He walks back in the back to get rid of some dishes. There's a knock on the door. He opens the door, and the cloaked figure hands him the bucket, which he takes to the cook, who pulls out some meat and starts to cut it up. Very Dexter. You've ever seen Dexter. You're sitting there thinking, so the hand grabbed the kid and butchered the kid, and the kid's in the bucket? Right, and they focused on that meat a whole lot. Correct. When we get to the end, if you remind me, I'll give you the most prevalent fan theory about that whole thing. Okay, cool. Because it would just give away too much to do it right here at the start. Go watch the movie. Stop the podcast. <laughs> yeah. The camera goes back out to the officers who are filling out the bracket. They ask the input of Seifa, who is sitting apart from the rest of the group. He's also like wearing a tie. He's one of the most official-looking members of the police. He's got a headache, and he says it's from them gambling. And you can really see like that chiaroscuro lighting technique in these scenes where it's like dark and neutral in the middle with a little tinge of red on one side and blue on the other to show what's closer to the edge of the film. Their police unit, they travel around in the van outside. Seifa is the driver of the van. That's his job. Remzi, they refer to as the boss. There's a guy, Arda, who's young. He's the rookie. Remzi has raised him since his parents died. Oppo, they refer to as the chief. And like I said, the only chief thing I see him do is he made a radio call at one point in the film. And then you have your boots. And this is where I got the most confused because at the very beginning, Seifu was the focus. He was leading us into the story, but then it becomes Arda. And I actually confused the two for a while in the show. Yeah. Uh, that could be a cultural thing with us watching it as opposed to someone else. But it, it, that did get me confused in the whole thing. They're the only two without facial hair and short hair. and They weren't wearing leather. Yeah. The two, you had the whole units broken down in two groups. One short-haired, facial hair, leather-wearing. And then two wearing button-downs with clean-shaven. and Yeah. Right. So they start talking about sex. And apparently Yavuz is known for his sexual peccadilloes. And he tells this story about how he took a prostitute home only to find out he was a transvestite. He had sex with him anyway, and then mildly assaulted him along the way. Yeah. And interspersed with these, you have these really close detailed shots of the cook putting this meat on the grill, which at this point in time we think is a boy who's been brought here by a bucket. It's not very appetizing. Um, and it's all about the setting, right? Because ordinary that's a Sizzler ad right there. If you take it out of there, <laughs> put some bouncy music behind it. About this time, the server shows up, and he's distributing around the table, and he's laughing. He's really just smiling. His back's to us. And Yavuz is offended by that. 
and it begins to escalate. And he's offended by it like Joe Pesci in Goodfellas, right? You call me a clown? What, do right. I make you laugh kind of thing? Right. And the whole thing starts to escalate. The cook comes out from the back, and he's trying to settle everything down, and it continues to escalate. And while it is, Safe is just looking worse and worse, and he eventually just gets up and runs for the door. He heads to the bathroom, making it in barely. The bathroom is lit purely in blue. He vomits everything in the sink. We go back to the restaurant. See, now when I was watching, I thought it was the toilet. And when he started splashing his face, I was like, oh, that's nasty. That's not right. (laughs) Back in the restaurant, Ramsey has managed to get everyone towards the door. And everything seems cool until the server says under his breath, if only you weren't cops. And all of a sudden, it's all going again. And Yavuz is talking a big game, and Ramsey calls him out. And he takes his gun off him and says, go ahead. Let's see what you can do. And they start to fight, and Yavuz actually does do a pretty good job of getting on top of the dude and just pounding the snot out of him. Yeah. Safe is in the bathroom, and he's splashing water on his face. And he looks, and there's this frog sitting in the soap dish. And the amount of time he spent on that shot lets you know that this frog is like an important thing. Yes. Seifu manages to shoo it away. It's not afraid of him at all. And he rinses his face off again and looks in the mirror. And he seems to be looking at his forehead. And his eyes go wide in terror. And he just starts screaming. Someone at some point in time and I've seen it three times, I did not see it, but mentioned that you could see the reflection of Baba in the mirror. I thought I saw something. But missed I missed it, but it's a cool little ad if it's actually there. Yeah. So the rest of the cops run out of the restaurant. They come out and they're like, Oppo's got his gun out. He's ready to shoot the lock off the door. And all of a sudden the door opens up. And Yavuz and Arter are waiting by the van, and Apo comes out and tells him, Seifa said he felt like he was losing his mind, but he's fine. He can still drive. <laughs> I felt like I was losing my mind. I screamed. Now I'm better. Yeah. They all pile in the van. The van drives off, and the camera goes back to the restaurant. And the interesting thing here is the restaurant seems completely deserted. So it makes you wonder, did they kill the staff? <laughs> True. This again, Seifu's the one kind of going crazy, and then and then flips over to Arda. So again, there's arguments over which parts of this are real and which parts are dreams. Even this beginning, you could argue one way or the other. It could be both. And just to lend some weight to, did they kill the staff? Yavuz at one point in time in this says, we've got the gun, we've got the badge. So he feels ridiculously entitled to do whatever he wants because of the job that he has. And it doesn't seem to bother the other officers. That's how it is. Yep. Ramsey wasn't going to start a fight with the guy, but he certainly wasn't going to stop one. What happens next is Seifa, in order to reassure the crew that he's okay, turns the radio on. And for the next two and a half minutes, you have a music video. Which is some of the craziest lyrics I've seen. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, what are they singing about? Could be bad translation. I'll give it that. It's really interesting to me because Turkey has always been a crossroads culturally. It sits between Asia, Eurasia, Europe. And 
that kind of thing is something in Bollywood films all the time. You watch even Bollywood horror movies, you'll watch them and there will be a three minute music video stuck in the middle of it, maybe two. And you're like, it just kind of took me out of it a little bit. As they're driving along, the song ends and the camera flips upside down. Before it happened, as the van was driving along, it was in blue light. When the camera flips upside down, the van is now lit in red. Yeah, another Silent Hill-like yes. uh, call out to what's going on. Yep. They get a call for backup to a neighborhood called Indyak. And Oppo says they'll respond and Seifa claims he knows how to get there. And they compare notes on what they know about Indyak. There are three shrines in the area, but Seifa says he's heard nasty stories and he never goes into any detail about any of them. The radio quits working. And while they're arguing about whether or not Seifa's lost, some figure, naked, kind of runs out in front of the van and disappears into the brush on the other side of the street. Seifa gets the van stopped and everyone gets out. He seems to be the only one who saw it, but everyone's backing him. They're not questioning him about it. They're all out there, flashlights in the darkness, yelling threats. And while they're doing that, something bumps the van on the other side hard, and the whole van rocks. So they run around to that side, and they find no one, but the side of the van is all scratched up. And then Yavuz sees there's an entire swarm of frogs on the side of the road, just piles of them. He makes a joke about maybe the frogs pushed the van. And again, there's a lot of hints of, is this real or is this a dream now? Or is it some alternate reality? Every part of this movie, you could find little things like that and argue. Yeah. Frogs have always been seen as a portent, especially in those kind of numbers, as a plague or some sort of oncoming threat. And I looked that up, actually. They also, in some times and cultures have been importance of ancient wisdom, which yeah. fits this in some ways also. Oh, it does. In fact, at the end of the movie, there's this whole thing about wisdom and just exactly what enlightenment is good and what enlightenment is bad. <laughs> and who gets to decide that? Yeah. They decide whoever's done it is long gone. So they climb back into the van and head off down the road. And then Yafus gives Seifu some crap about what he actually saw. And when Seifa turns to retort back, he turns back and there's a person in the middle of the road directly in front of the van. I did, of course, as I want to do, pause the video exactly to look at the figure. And it is just a ragged figure. And it's just like the hands up in front of their face, like protection kind of thing as they smack against the glass. Because Seifa hits the figure hard, loses control of the vehicle, it careens off the road, down an embankment, and into the water below. And here we shift. And we're shifting directly into Arda's mind, which yeah. is the third venue of this film. You see a footage of some Turkish game show, and Yavuz and Apo are watching it laughing. They think it's hilarious. Seifa's sitting there staring off while the cook from the diner is stoking the grill, and Remzi's sitting there fingering his prayer beads, which he does a lot in this movie. Yeah, I noticed that. Kind of as a sign of maybe spirituality or wisdom. Arda relates a saying of his father's, you shouldn't talk about your dreams at night, which I think is a cool little saying. Yeah, that's about as comforting as if you die before you wake. <laughs> yeah. Son, don't speak about your dreams at night. He says that his name came to his father in a dream before he was born, and his parents were really into dreams. So now we see that 
there's perhaps this mystical spiritual side from both of his parents. Perhaps this has been passed down to him. We find out later that it has. He then starts to relate this story about his childhood friend named Koskin. And Koskin claimed to have actually seen his own father's soul leaving his body when he died. His brother, who was there too, didn't see anything. And they made a pact that whoever died first would appear to the other without scaring them. Then Koskin left on a ferry that day and Arda went to bed when he got home. He had a dream where everyone was glaring at him and he was scared of something, but he didn't know what. Have you ever had dreams like that? Yeah, they, they, some no. of them have been uh, awake. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> you have this unknown, unseen thing and you should be scared of it, but you don't know why. You don't even know what it is. And a lot of that times, though, I know it's a dream, but that doesn't change how you feel in the dream. Yeah. Koskin cuts through the crowd and he holds his hand and tells him not to be scared. And then he awakens from that dream into another. And here's where we find out what a red herring the start was, because the other dream that he woke into is what we saw at the start of the movie, where his mom's in her room, he hears her groaning, and then no one's there. And the television's on, it's only static. He heads to his room, but instead of a, just a hand reaching for him, he knows it's Koskin in there, and he's scared to see him. So right. he runs to his mom's room and pounds on the door, and then he wakens for real. Then he found out that Koskin died that night. So he continues to have that dream to this day, and he had it that morning. And he says, it's like I'm still dreaming. Hint, hint. <laughs> yeah. He lost his parents a year later in a car crash. And Ramsey points out that there's no one else in the diner now. And so this is like a Ramsey who is possibly a figment of Arda's imagination in this dream state. And he's guiding him. He's do you know there's no one else in the diner right now? It's like the, like I said, Jacob's Ladder, the friend that's the angel that guides him. That I've, I saw the parallels between those two movies in this scene very heavily. Yeah. The lighting and the music turn ominous. And then there's this hooded figure in the kitchen area. And Ramsey says this is the first time that someone other than he can see it. Water starts to drip on Arda's head from the ceiling, and then blood just starts gushing from under his hands across the table. The water over his head turns to blood, and we look down in his feet. He's ankle deep in water, and he falls backwards, and he's completely submerged in water. And this giant hand reaches down to grab him. Yeah, that was a cool imagery there. Cool shot, yeah. yeah. And then we're back to the present. Two members of the squad are pulling him out of the water, um, and they're arguing of course, about whose fault this is. And then this super tall, bizarre-looking guy with a lantern on a staff comes up. They climb out of the water to discover a group of homeless people living next to the bridge. Evernall, in an interview, called them the Frog Hunters. Um, and then he talked, He talks about this, and he is... Stephen King is one of the only other people I've heard refer to, to this. He's They're the Borderland people. Yes, I... That's almost exactly what I put. Yeah. And King talks about this all the time in interviews where you have a settlement that's on a border between two places and it's always shady and like morality and law and everything are mixed up because it's proximity to the border. And I was even, when this happened, this is where arguably this could still be a dream. You could say this is part of a dream because the... Those people just conveniently were right there, for one thing, but they seemed a little bit like 
the borderland people or on the river sticks like they were guiding them across to the other world is what i got out of these guys reluctantly (laughs) (laughs) okay yeah (laughs) ramsey wonders who they hit with the van nobody at the campfire seems to know anything about it they hang around the campfire and assess their situation they've got no radio they've got no van they ask the big guy where they are and he says where they were looking for they were looking for another argument it's still it's a dream yeah he's it's that way to the woods you should go through the grove the place the backup call came from is through the woods about 200 meters away and they try to get a guide no one's excited about it they basically force one guy into doing it one woman is actually really nice she's like you should just stay here and rest they're like we've got important stuff to do i think it was yava saying that she's like, you got stuff to do you better get at it with her saying that and acting like that's another argument that they were like guiding them into the underworld, into the netherworld or whatever, because that's the type of thing you always get that one character. It's, Maybe you want to stay on this side. We gave you a chance. There you yep. go. <laughs> then they head off across this bridge and this girl says something and it's not subtitled. Yes. And in this one interview, I saw this guy saying, so this girl says something in Turkish and you don't subtitle it. And John's, it's not Turkish. She was speaking in French. Ah, okay. He wanted to throw a line in French there to make this kind of mysterious goodbye from the borderland people. But the girl didn't know French and her pronunciation was horrible. (laughs) It didn't sound French, but okay. (laughs) The translation roughly of what she said was, happy are those who march in ignorance to death. Which is about what I guessed it would be. Pretty much. Yeah. Abandon all hope, ye who exit. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Happy are they who march in ignorance to death. They find this abandoned police car parked outside this ancient police station. It was a police station in the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Then it was a stable, and now it's just this abandoned ruin. They head in to try and find the missing police. As they do, Ramsey pulls Arda aside, and he says he was supposed to look after him. And he says, don't worry, I have the key to all this. Everyone pulls their guns and heads towards the door. Arda stops and notes that there's some really bizarre Blair Witch mobiles hanging around the outside, right? You got twigs and just random stuff hanging off of wire. Seyfried checks the car, and there's no key or a working radio, and he's freaking out about it a little bit. Oppo comes up, reminding him they have the gun and the badge. Then he's, how does the Turkish national anthem start? And Seyfried's like, fear not, and he starts singing. And the Turkish national anthem, the first line is, fear not, the crimson flag waving in these dawns will never fade. So, the first, yeah. About that time, their guide just... Beats feet. He's, I'm out of here. Yeah. (laughs) Smart man. The first thing they note when they get inside is this overpowering stench. Then the place seems completely empty and abandoned. (laughs) Inside, we have more of what I have in my notes written down as Satan's mobiles. (laughs) It's a mess of wire and meat. It's <laughs> Satan art and craft. There's a macaroni thing on the fridge. They find more of these meat mobiles, and, and now the floor surface is squishy. And then they find a clutch of eggshells. They're broken open, not shattered, just like broken open, and they're full of blood. Yeah. And eggs are always seen as like a sign of renewal, 
life, spirituality, but finding them in this state is a really bad sign. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They hear this pounding from deeper in the building and they go to track it down and they discover a policeman. He's just standing there beating his head against the wall. He's really basically catatonic. Yeah. That was very disturbing Yeah, because that's an argument that it's not a dream state. Along with the guide running away, if it had been that dreams that he would have just disappeared. Disappeared, right. Yeah. They ask the guy where his unit is. He eventually raises his arm and points to a doorway that exits the room where there's one solitary policeman's hat sitting on the floor. Seifa gets the job of escorting this officer back to his car, which you would think, that's a good gig. I get to leave. (laughs) You would be wrong. (laughs) Like you are quite often in horror movies. (laughs) They find this flight of stairs and it goes down. In Turkish mythology, I don't even necessarily want to say mythology. This could actually be current. There's a place called Tamayg, and that is what they call hell. And it is described as being below the surface of the ground. So they come to this place and they find spiral stairs going downstairs, deep into the earth. You know where you're headed. I agree with Yavis here. I'm like, yeah, it's pitch black and steps going down. I'm no, I would not stay. (laughs) And Appa tries to get Arda to stay with him. And Arda's, I'm not staying. I'm going with you guys. And then Yavis is, oh, now I have to stay here by myself. I don't think (laughs) so. And he goes with him. Yeah, that was a mistake on his part. Um, it was. Uh, so they start to head down, and as Seifo and the comatose man head out, the lighting changes. And then he sees a frog on the floor. And the frog hops around the corner, and Seifo follows it. And part of me thinks this was the frog that he shooed off of its perch uh, in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And as he's walking, he turns around the corner and finds some couple just screwing right there except it's not just some couple because they're pardon the derogatory nature of the commentary but they're doing it doggy style and the person who's on their knees their face seems to be in a bowl of what looks like crap yeah it's very disturbing imagery yes everybody in this film all of the general players that we'll be talking about are wearing some kind of mask it like covers their face. They have things that are bound around them. They're wearing rags if they're wearing anything. And there's a whole lot of filthy, oily skin. Yeah. It's overall like the toxic Avenger having an orgy. Yes. Flesh <laughs> pit was the phrase that I heard referred to it. Yeah, there you go. So there's a whole, there's this whole black, there's full head, black masks, chains, and he drops his gun. Because it startles him. Yeah. And then he bends down to grab it. And all of a sudden, all of these hands come out of nowhere and grab him and just pull him screaming into the chaos. And the catatonic guy just stands there giggling. Yeah. Or crying. You know, just he's a madman now. This is now we're into it. This is definitely the most disturbing thing yet in the movie. Yes. And that thus is the end of Seifu. So <laughs> yeah. if you thought he was the main character... Not unlike Martyrs, where you're like, what? Yeah, all of a sudden your main character's gone. But also, he's just around the corner. He's screaming. These people are having sex. They make noise. But the others don't come running right then to see it. So again, there's something not right with the world in this place. Something's out of step. Right. Yeah. 
The guys downstairs find a blood-stained room with a couple of boxes and candles and a book and a pile of locks. Chains hanging from the ceiling and there are paintings and illustrations all over the wall, including the camera takes time to focus on three or four specific ones. There's a frog. There's a devil. There's an incredibly intricate anatomical drawing of the inside of some goat human hybrid thing. Yeah. And then there's even an image of the devil taking someone from behind. And by taking, I mean, screwing them from behind. And it looked, some of the flashes looked kind of like some frog people hybrids having sex. Like we just saw a minute ago. Yeah. Oppo in his explorations finds the side room and their bodies wrapped in plastic. And now they're not just lying on the floor. They're hanging from the ceiling. And there's a woman in this little cage. And he's shocked, yet curious. <laughs> Arda, on the other hand, is following this blood trail that leads a different direction. And it leads to these masked figures who are butchering humans. Oppo, in the other room, reaches for the cage. And this towering figure comes out of nowhere and clops him on the head with a sledgehammer. Yep. And he drops. And they do a good job. He does a good job with his face, and then you see the blood dripping down. Yeah. sound, without actually seeing some special effect of the sledgehammer buried in his skull. Yeah. Uh, very effective. Yavuz actually sees this and starts screaming. <laughs> of them all, Arda is the only one who actually shoots. All these guys have guns in their hands. Art is the only one who shoots, and his shots are like 15 feet in the air over yeah. anything. Yeah. The, um, the, which, again, and I could be wrong. We've talked a little bit about the cultural differences with the police. I don't know how much training they get. These cops seem, from our viewpoint, a little corrupt, a little power hungry, that they can do whatever they want. So I question how much training they really have because – They didn't go about this search in a way that seemed logical. And he shot crazy as he's running, which on our cop TV shows, which however close that is to real cops, I don't know, but you don't see that. And I can't believe after all the training. Of course, this is an unusual situation. It is. (laughs) And Evernall is really good to like linger just for a second too long on various things. So like you can see the body that's hanging up that the butcher is, literally taken the right leg off of yes yes this horde of bestial creature people things start giving chase these guys start running they end up tumbling down this hole in the wall and remsey and arda see hands reach out and grab and haul away yavuz so now safe is gone apu they left back in the other room yavuz gets dragged away somehow remsey and arda end up separated and oh, Arda's running around crazy. <laughs> yeah. Art is running down a tunnel, which just seamlessly melts into his childhood hallway. Yes. Again, a lot of similarities to Silent Hill keep yeah. coming up when I was watching this. He may not have meant that. You know, it's just a good way of doing something like this. For sure. He sees his younger self there at the end of the dream, and the hooded hand reaches out to and leads him, leads his child self away then he grabs him and pulls him in at the very end and then shuts the door anger uses these dream sequences to segue from one scene into the other he just does it so well because it goes from that to art of drinking water 
He's yeah. back in the diner and he's choking now, drinking the water. And Remzi, he's with him and he realizes something's off. He can feel it, but he can't put his finger on it. Remzi replies that not everything has a clear answer, Arda, which you could say for this movie, <laughs> for that matter. He goes on to say they're at a crossroads, and he's not sure if it's him or if it's Arda who's at the crossroads or if it's all of them. Which, again, Remzi, typically, like, Arda is the personification of the audience in this film, right? They do this in horror movies a lot where there's somebody that the audience can identify and relate to. But Remzi is what's going on in the audience's head, really. I don't know if it's Remzi who's in this horrible situation or if it's Arda or is it all of them? Right. Having seen it three times, I don't, I still don't know. <laughs> he says that they were summoned there that night. There was no call for backup. Then he goes on to say he's always seen them like his grandmother did. Something that's always looking for something. It's searching. It's haunting. He can feel it. And he points out to Arda that Arda can feel it too. He just doesn't realize it. And I liked that because in the supernatural world and all that, they always talk about how animals and little kids can see things that maybe we can't. That because of the way their brain doesn't filter things right. like we've learned to, they see things we don't. Because our eyes don't see stuff, it's our brain. And that fits this movie really well. Yeah. And I liked that concept. Yeah. Arda then, I don't know, wakes up because <laughs> where he is this any more real than anything else, we've now moved to the third section, which is hell. He wakes up, he's chained to a pillar, as is Remzi, Enyavuz, and Apo. They all had bags on their head, and a figure that I refer to as Baba's lieutenant is taking the bags, the masks off their head. And the lieutenant claps. Oh, wait, this, I'm sorry. The focus is all kind of soft and fuzzy. And what I'm calling Baba's court can be seen and heard anticipating his arrival. And those dirty, half-dressed, oily people wearing masks. It's just a whole bunch of them down there. Yeah, it's definitely looking dark mass. <laughs> There's just no... Ozzy might step out of the shadows. <laughs> right. The lieutenant claps and the court, the entire court prostrate themselves as the Baba begins to descend the stairs. There's an altar in this vaulted room with lit candles and a book on it. And hanging above the altar, I'd be surprised, I don't want to say surprised, be interested to hear if you saw it, because I didn't see it until my third watching, is a giant key. No, did not yeah. touch that. It blends in really well with the staircase, because the staircase is a wire frame spiral staircase. But there's this giant key hanging over the altar. Ah. Nice. Good touch. Yeah. Yavuz starts hurling insults and threats at him, and he just completely ignores him. And he walks over and sits down. The lieutenant brings this bowl of water, which he dips his hands in, and then he starts to just pat his head. And that is the exact shot from Apocalypse Now. Marlon Brando does that as he sits up, he's in the sweltering heat of Vietnam and he puts his hands in the butt and the camera frames on the back of his head. Is he like, <laughs> I was like, Oh, that's so cool. That's, that's, I love that. Baba walks over to Yavuz and just laughs at him. Like, huh? He then goes to the center of the room and he begins by telling them that he sees that they are there to join them tonight. And it is their job to welcome the police officers. 
On a night like this, when doors open and realms unite, we're here in this chamber together. Hell is not a place you go. You carry hell with you at all times. It is inside you. And now we're waiting for the Cenobites to show up. <laughs> Hellraiser actually got mentioned in one of the other reviews I read. They're like, it makes this makes Pinhead and his friends seem like a walk in the park or something. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. There are all these goth pit posers here. <laughs> yeah. And this is where we get the part where Baba, this is with all the horrific stuff that happens in the next 10, 15 minutes in this movie, Baba is like this premium philosopher. Yeah. It's like the evil twin Gandhi. Yes. Here we are at this place when all of these realms are uniting and you have hell inside you. You carry it with you all the time. He says that fate has put them first among the creatures that they are here to herd. He then goes to Oppo. And Oppo has what look like fresh sutures in his abdomen. Yeah. And the guy just reaches down and pulls him out and starts to disembowel him. <laughs> With his finger, just pull That's him. it. That's that's the disturbing part. It's not Braveheart where they just cut you open and then the stuff falls out. He's like pulling the stuff out. Yeah. Like a yarn. And I know it's not clean and all that, but... The intestines looked shriveled and old and like they've been decayed already, which again made you, made me at least look at it and wonder what's real, what's not, where are we actually at? Is it saying he's diseased inside? Oh, yeah. Or is it that coming to this place turned him into something that he wasn't? There, again, Good horror, lots of possibilities. Yeah. He starts coiling it like a rope. Yeah. Last uh, Yeah. The lieutenant releases the chains and Oppo falls to the floor. He's done. Yeah. Seifu. He then says, you die as you sleep and you resurrect as you wake up. Because more, sleeping is the little death. More little philosophical nuggets there for you to chew on as he's cutting pieces off of your body. Isn't calling sleep the little death, isn't that French also? Isn't that where that came from? The most famous one that comes instantly to my mind because I'm neurotic is <laughs> Frank Herbert from Dune. Oh, okay. It was the, It's the prayer Paul Atreides does, fears to die the little death. They don't refer to it as dreams, just the little death is like specifically right. that. But Hamlet. In his soliloquy, to right. sleep, to dream. To dream. Yeah. yeah. Baba's lieutenant walks over to the altar and casts some bones, like rolls them like dice. And Baba removes his robe to reveal, A, the dude's jacked. <laughs> <laughs> He's cut for a guy who's four foot tall. And he also has this necklace made like almost entirely of giant ancient locks. He heads over to Yavuz and this stool is brought over so you can crawl up onto the stool and look him in the eye. And this is a pretty disturbing next couple minutes of film. <laughs> yeah. And we watched Martyrs. Yeah. He asks Yavuz what his name is and he replies that they're the law. Then Baba says, do you think the law is here with you now? And then he calls him out. He's you look tough, but you're really scared. He says the human soul is corrupt, only looking for power and searching for new things to worship. He takes this knife out and asks him, are you ready to give up searching for power to join us? 
Are you willing to give up your worldly eyes to open your eyes to what's beyond? Open your heart to me. Open your soul to me. Yeah. And then he cuts out Yavuz's eyes. Not just cuts it out. He pokes multiple times. Yeah. It's one of those scenes where you see him all the time in horror movies where like something gets really close to the eye and then they cut away. They don't do that here. And in fact, he like rounds out the eye sockets, makes sure he gets everything out. But that's not even the worst part. No. <laughs> the court is all excited when he does this. He pulls the knife out and then he licks it. And he says, open the eyes of your heart. And then he tongues his eye socket. That's terrible. That was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. yeah. Then he takes a cloth and places it over his eyes and kisses his forehead and says, don't let me down, you fuzz. And the thing that really shocked me when he really shocked me, when he put the cloth over his face, all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, he looks just like all the people down there on the floor. This is where he gets these people. Yeah. When you just listen to what he's saying, ignore all the horrible parts. The philosophy of it is a good discussion piece. And we said the same thing about martyrs, remember? Yep. Here we are watching all this horror. Yeah, I like what he's saying. Yeah. Ignore the horror stuff, but yeah. Yeah, that's what makes it disturbing. <laughs> yes, exactly. At this, uh, we find out that goat person hybrid sketch from the wall is real. The lieutenant leads her in on a chain. She's wearing a grass skirt, and that's about it. She has like a goat skull permanently fixed to her head. Yavuz is unchained and led behind her, and they pull down his pants and force him to copulate with her. Which I don't know how I'd be able <laughs> There's some mechanics involved. After I got my eyes poked out, I don't know about that happening. No blue pill or anything. Yeah. He appears to finish, and then he kind of sits on the floor as she crawls away. And then Baba accuses him of not fully opening his heart and mind. And he seems to have this kind of seizure and collapses to the floor. His mouth opens and a tarantula crawls out. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's safe to assume that he's dead. I wondered why it wasn't a frog, though. Ooh, yeah. Baba takes this lap through the flock as they all adore him. <laughs> and Good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. He re returns the last two. And he tells Arda, maybe you'll get to do it. And they're bringing the stool over. Rumsey's yelling at him. He's just a kid. Come to me. But Baba gets his knife out and he licks it again. He gets up on his stool and he's standing by Arda and he licks it again. Then he licks his finger and it leaves a bloody fingerprint. It leaves blood on his finger, which he puts on Arda's forehead. So Arda has this mark right in the middle of his forehead. Right. What's that called in the Hindu religion? It's where your pineal gland is located. Oh, okay. Third eye. Yeah. What do they call the, they put the marks or the gems there. Yeah. Uh, to to note whether you're married. Yeah. I apologize. I don't remember what that's called, but yeah, all of those things are interesting placement. Yeah. He then says, I wasn't wrong, Arda. And then he steps up to Remzi, who just defiantly has come on. Baba says he thought that Remzi was the one they were after. Like they came here specifically for this. But now there's two. And Arda's one. And he thanks him for raising Arda so well. And he's sure that Arda is now ready to see the mysteries for himself. Without further ado, he slits Remzi's throat. And then he washes his hands in the blood and like bathes his head with it. Yeah. I know there's an Aussie song about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Now he returns to Arda and he grabs him by the head and we get this vision of a road leading to this station, of the station itself, of the goat woman unceremoniously giving birth to this lump. Yeah, that was disturbing too. Yes. <laughs> she stands in a bucket or like a pan. The lieutenant grabs it and then scurries off with it. <laughs> <laughs> and then Baba removes his hands off of Arda's head and Arda's back at the diner. Ramsey's on the floor in a pool of blood. He's not dead yet. And he quotes Corkin back to Arda that whoever dies first shall appear to the other without scaring him. And so apparently this is the soul of Ramsey who is appearing before Arda now. Yes. Ramsey says he only has one key in this life and now it is Arda's. And then Arda looks and there's this key in the incision in Ramsey's neck. Which he pulls out. The Baba comes in through the kitchen of this diner in a dream, mind you. Yes. And says everything ends, but everything starts anew. But when Arda looks at him, there is a keyhole in the Baba's forehead. Arda slams the key into this keyhole and bam, they're out of the dream. Which everything up to this point with all the dreams and all that. And then this got so much more surreal, just the key, the interpretation. I, this is another one of those. I would like Bob to watch and see what he says about all the symbolism. Bob's not watching this film. <laughs> you don't want to know about it if he does. No, I'm just saying he does not like these kind of films. And yeah, this is very much over the line of what he would not oh, like. Oh God, it is. But it does the amount of, symbolism you can interpret and what it means in the particular place it's at it could take like you said theological research to centuries of yeah. looking at this movie seriously a simple uh, plot with a whole lot layered in it yes regular horror lasagna if i may be it is all right Woo! <laughs> season four so the part that completely freaked me out is that they're back in reality, for lack of a better term. The Bob is falling backwards. The key from the dream is still in his head. Yes. Which is, whoa. So he grabbed this key from a dream, brought it into reality. The Bob is collapsed on the floor. Arda gets the chains off of himself, grabs the step stool, and just bashes the Baba's head in. Uh, several times. And, oh, yeah. and we could probably explain a lot of this if we got some like quantum physics scientists in here, because I'm sure there's some quantum explanations for these dreams and the worlds and what's happening. Or a heavy dose of acid. I think it's the same thing sometimes. <laughs> the congregation just writhe around on the floor. They don't challenge Arda as he moves through. In fact, they kind of part, and some of them try to reach out and touch him like he has now taken on the mantle. Yes. And I looked at that. It's like... They're not, I don't even think the Baba was concerned about his death because I think it's renewal. I think everything uh, that, ends and everything. Yes, is, that's yeah. another thing. The frog symbolism was said was resurrection is another use of the symbolism eggs. And, and Baskin by, oh, eggs. Yeah. And Baskin, by the way, I looked it up. Uh -huh. It means sculptor or artist. Oh, nice one. That totally helps put a spin on everything. Yeah. I just kept thinking of ice cream. What, the follow-up is going to be called Robbins? Yes. That's the <laughs> sequel. 
Arda starts to make up the stairs. This his bloody hand reaches out, and this hand has been used several times in short flashes throughout the movie. His hand reaches out. He makes his way out of the station, moving erratically, laughing like the madman he now is. He heads off through the woods. He starts to cough, as if the fresh air now is poisoning him because of what he's been through. He makes it to this road, and he starts running down the road, and he gets to this curve in the road, and a police van comes around the corner. He tries to wave them down, only for Seifu to hit him, lose control of the van, and put it in the ravine. He is the thing that they hit earlier in the movie. Roll credits. Yes, which... What the Baba was saying with the key and how it ended, the comment I made was, so he got the key to see beyond himself and, and see the other world, which again, is he now the new Baba? And which part of reality was he living in at any point if he was in the van that hit himself? Yeah, it's the fan theory. Yes, yes. Is that the lieutenant is the figure in the robe at the start of the movie who shows up to the diner delivering a bucket of meat carved off of the people, probably the previous policemen. And that the diner itself is actually like the entrance to this whole situation. I can see that. It just popped into my head with you saying that. What's that? The guy with the bucket and the meat in it. That's the baby blob. That was the guy running off giggling. Yeah. And it hit Seifu really hard. Like he was nauseous, feeling sick from eating it all. The rest of them, all we ever see is them sitting around drinking coffee or water or whatever. Yeah. That's some people. Yeah. There's just a lot of discussion online about what this movie is, what it means in general. I just find it a very well-crafted film with some philosophical stuff thrown in there. And I actually like the mystery of the whole thing. It's, I have always enjoyed surrealism. And this is one of those cases where it seems like you're trying to interpret a dream. And yeah. sometimes you can't because the world is very different in reality than it is in a dream. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. But the real question of the movie remains, who won the soccer bets? <laughs> yes, that's what the whole thing was. That's what the sequel's going to be. Right, there you go. <laughs> it's going to be about the soccer men. So, there's another one. This is another movie that's probably not going to make our starter list of, hey, if you're looking to go look, go watch This Is Not It. This and Martyrs. Yes. Two of right. the, one of the two most disturbing, I think, so far. And the thing is, it's only the last little bit that's so disturbing on this one. Right, yeah. yeah. Audition was the same way, where you had yeah. the, the disturbing part at the end. And uh, Loved Ones. Yes, but Loved Ones had that almost tongue-in-cheek, like it was on the verge of being a tongue-in-cheek comedy. And it played it off very well because it never really crossed the line into that. And that I, that's what sticks out about that one. Plus, it was all in the daylight. <laughs> Not all in the daylight. A lot of it was. It's a more daylight movie than the other ones. They're very dark movies. We're going to shift gears now. Okay. Not horribly drastically. The next movie is not comedic but it's super meta (laughs) it is a found footage film called behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon yes and i've got that for us to watch so i will make sure you get that i did get that one yeah that one intrigues me because 
it's a documentary. Of- it is. It's <laughs> it's a mockumentary, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, it's 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 quite the trip. Cool. Can't wait for it. Alrighty. All right, man. Thanks. Yep. You have been listening to Horror Lasagna. To see all of our seasons and listen to all of the movie reviews with all the themes for each season, check out HorrorLasagna.com. And if you like the podcast, like the movies and reviews, please give us a like, share with a friend, subscribe to our Facebook page, subscribe on your favorite podcast app, pass it along, let people know, tell us, hey, I liked it. That was a good movie. Thank you. We would appreciate it. Creature slips from perception. Pay attention. It will rise again. <laughs>